All right. Well, speaking of coffee, I did not drink coffee in college. Uh, I, I, I wasn't into it. I didn't really like it. I didn't grow up going to coffee shops. That wasn't really a thing uh, so much when I was a kid. I had friends in college who started going to this new thing called the coffee shop. It was called Starbucks. And uh, there, it wasn't even in our college town. You had to go to the next town over to get to a Starbucks. And I went with a friend for the first time, and, and the only thing I remember was that the coffee tasted really, really dark, and it was all coffee did to me at that time, kind of bitter. And it was basically a 50-cent cup of coffee for three bucks. That was the cool thing about it, right? I didn't get it. I didn't like coffee. I didn't really drink it. I didn't, definitely didn't get the whole coffee vibe at that time. Um, it just wasn't sort of a part of my life. But I remember taking an art class uh, as a senior in college, probably to finish up some requirement that I hadn't done. And, and this professor, he started this class off with this beautiful poetic reading about the power of a cup of coffee. It was really interesting to me. I, in fact, I looked through my college notes this week, and I, I, didn't, I didn't write it down. But the piece was, I didn't write down like how, what it was called. I wish I had. But the piece, I remember it. It was all about warmth and friendship and welcome and rest and hope and healing and the restoration of all things. And I loved it. I loved it. And, and I, I wish I knew what it was called. I remember loving this piece and also remember thinking, wow, who knew all this was in a cup of coffee? This, was, this whole thing was about this cup of coffee. This is what it communicates, all this great stuff that I loved and I wanted to be about. Uh, but I didn't know that some people viewed coffee like this. It actually made me want to rethink my whole coffee practice, right, if this was possible. So we're in a, a series of teachings to kick off the new year called The Practices of Jesus, and what we're doing is we're, we're looking at not just what Jesus teaches or talks about, but the practices, the way he does, the way he lives his life, the things that, he, the things that we see Jesus doing. This is how Jesus lives. We want to see how Jesus lives. We want to do what Jesus does. We want to copy Jesus. That's the invitation, to follow Christ, right? And, and we're kind of taking that especially literally in, in this season, looking at what he did and trying to figure out how might we emulate or copy him. Last week, I taught on Jesus's practice of lifting others up, Jesus's provocative practice of elevating the social status of those who were in, in his culture seen as less than, such as Gentiles, which were non-Jews, or slaves, or women. What we see Jesus doing is lifting up those who are seen as less than but shouldn't be, they're seen as less than, but they shouldn't be because there's no shame in being a Gentile, and there's no moral justification for slavery, and there's no moral deficiency tied to being a woman. So there are three situations where people are seen as less than, but shouldn't be, and what we see Jesus doing is lifting those up who were seen as, but shouldn't be seen as, left, as less than. What motivates Jesus' activism, if you can call it that, is this basic conviction that all people are created in the image of God. So all humanity carries this basic human dignity because of our understanding of how creation happens. All people are therefore valuable. There's this basic human dignity in all people by virtue of the fact that they're created by God. At least that's the biblical conviction. That's the Genesis 1 story. So if a person realizes, for instance, that they are holding a prejudice 
And then they nurture that prejudice. They feed and fortify that prejudicial view about another person, that, they are, that the other person is inferior to them. That person is not holding a biblical position. They're not. And I know it happens all the time, and there are tragically way too many examples of it happening, way too many examples of racism and classism and sexism we can point to. I know it's common. It's not Christian. Christ elevates the status. He lifts up those who are seen as less than. He makes Gentiles the hero of his story. He makes children the standard for his disciples. He sees and he touches and he talks to and he heals and he teaches and he gives important roles to women and then he fills them with his spirit so they can do ministry. By the way, I spent a few minutes last week looking at the basic underpinnings of the argument for women in ministry and against women in ministry. I took about six minutes to try to show where, because Christians disagree on this, to show where in the Bible both those arguments are rooted and then why Emmaus supports women in all roles in ministry. And if you missed that last week and it would be interesting to you, you can find it at about minute 26 of last week's recording. So the image we, we used last week was the image of a balance which isn't a perfect symbol, uh, but what I hope it triggers in us is the idea that when somebody is being mistreated or treated as less than, we who follow Jesus, we should do whatever we can to lift them up, to lift them up. I don't like the image of a balance because in lifting somebody up, we are not pulling somebody else down, right? We're not called to ever pull anybody else. We're called to lift people up. The image I've chosen to present today, to represent today's message is the image of a coffee cup. Uh, because the practice of Jesus that we're looking at today is the practice of welcoming others in. And it's similar to what we talked about last week, but it's, it's not the same. Last week, we considered how Jesus lifted up those who were seen as less than, but didn't deserve to be seen as less than. Today, I want to explore how Jesus welcomed those in who were the outcasts of society, largely because of something they did. Okay. Because in the eyes of many, they deserved to be outcasts. Not because of the fact that they were part of another race, but because of something they had done. If last week was challenging, this week is especially challenging. And by challenging, I mean kind of difficult to navigate well and potentially more controversial. Uh, can we acknowledge that some of these social challenges would be easier to just not talk about at all? Can we just acknowledge that together? That would make me feel a little bit better. Um, can I say that my hope is not to stir up controversy? That's not my hope. That's not my goal. But my goal is to faithfully and lovingly uh, present the word of God in order to invite us into greater holiness and to be a church that's about restoration of broken things. So I've kind of been laughing at myself this week because uh, churches today are going to try really hard all over the country to connect this highly commercialized sort of athletic TV extravaganza to the teachings of a homeless Jew in the first century. They're going to try like so hard to make some connect. And I understand the motive because the culture is all about it right now. And so churches are going to try to try to like lock in with that, ride that wave. And some of my brother and sister pastors this morning, they, you know what, they, they just, they're going to roll a video with some ex-athlete, right? And, and I'm going to try to navigate the nuances uh, around like welcoming and yet standing for something. And, uh, and I just feel like, why was I, this is crazy. I just, 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 can you just roll the tape up there, Ryan? 
Joe Montana or somebody. Yeah. It's too easy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. How do we do this? How do we welcome those who are perceived in many ways to us to be not with us? They don't agree with us. They might even be against us. And already I'm using a complicated term there, aren't I? Us. Because we don't agree on stuff. Even the 150 here or whatever. So we're going to look at, a, at the simple fact that Jesus embraced the outcast. That Jesus quietly and without fanfare, to use traditional language, welcomed the sinner. Okay? Jesus welcomed the sinner. And I pray that my thoughts and my words, I pray that they are honoring to Jesus and that they are helpful to you. Um, the fact that Jesus welcomed the outcast is no secret. It is a well-known practice of Jesus. You don't have to look in between the big stories and find in the small little cracks this practice. This is, he's famous for this practice. Jesus is well-known for welcoming the outcast. Writers of his, the accounts of his life point out this practice of Jesus because it is one of the most and possibly the most controversial thing that Jesus does. Consequently, it's very well-known. His welcoming practice played no smart in the no small part in the controversy surrounding the life of Jesus. It absolutely led to his assassination. Jesus' practice of welcoming the outcast is something that we can read about 2,000 years later and go, isn't that amazing? He's so amazing. I love that he did that. He welcomed the outcast. But it cost him something, right? It cost him something. We cheer about it now. But it cost him something then. In other words, there were social ramifications to welcoming the outcast. Um, you extract yourself from the in crowd really quickly when you welcome the outcast, right? Junior hires know this. MBA students know that. Probably everybody knows this. Uh, have you ever done that? Do you have a story where you welcomed somebody who was not in, they were out, but you welcomed them. You, you were trying to do what you believed was the right thing to do for someone who was out, and, and, and then you got backlash from the people who you thought were your own people. Anybody have a story like that? I remember I was in high school, and there was this kid, he was super, super weird, just a really strange kid. I didn't know him, and I don't remember his name. Um, I just remember feeling like he was really challenging to be around. He was very irritating. He seemed to like being irritating. I mean, who knows what was going on in this poor kid's house? You know, who knows? At the time, I wasn't thinking about those kinds of things. And I wouldn't even remember this kid except for this one day our paths crossed in the cafeteria. He had come to school with a big baggy denim jacket like it was cool to wear in the early 90s. Anybody have a big baggy denim jacket? Okay, you rolled up the sleeves just a little bit. Okay, Andrea, you're with me, right? So young man had this beautiful denim jacket, and, and, but then what he did, he, he chose to write all over the jacket with a Sharpie, Jesus loves you, and Jesus is Lord. And so that was so weird to me because I, all I knew about this kid was he was always in trouble, and, and I was trying to, I saw the jacket in the morning, and I was like, ah, that's really interesting. I, I was just sort of intrigued by it, trying to, kind of confused by it. 
And then during lunch, a group of guys, including some of my teammates on the football team, they gather around this kid, they push him to the ground, and they started giving him a really bad time. This kind of thing would happen relatively frequently in my high school, and I just never paid attention to it. I just never got involved in it. Um, And I couldn't really tell what was happening to the kid, but then suddenly, one of my teammates kind of emerged from the circle holding his jacket. They'd ripped it off of him. And he dramatically walks over to a nasty cafeteria trash can. And he puts it in the trash can. And everybody laughs. And then he said this. I just won't ever forget this. He said, that's okay. Jesus loves you. And I, I flipped. I, something, something went click in me. And uh, I got up from where I was sitting. And I moved over, walked over, and I entered into the big circle I grabbed the guy's jacket out of the trash can, and I went in and brought it into the circle, and I gave it to him. And I didn't say anything to him, and he didn't say anything to me. My football buddies did stupid stuff to me. And then the weird thing was, on the way out, then the kid got up, and he, he walked out of the cafeteria. And on the way out of the cafeteria, he, he threw it away. He took his jacket, and he put it in a trash can, another one, a different trash can. And uh, so, that, so that's all I did. I, I didn't say anything to him. I just gave his jacket back. The whole thing lasted like 90 seconds. Um, and that kind of thing, as I said, it happened all the time in my school, but I never got involved. But this time I, I did. And I remember just this little act of pulling out this kid's trash can, this kid's jacket out of a trash can. It cost me something. It, it cost me something. I was a senior football player, and I had a lot of friends. It wasn't like it was a big risky thing for me to do. I didn't feel afraid. I felt uncomfortable, but I didn't feel afraid. But man, instantly, there's no faster way to exit the in crowd than to associate yourself with somebody in the out crowd, right? Instantly. Um, And that's why I remember this, because of the ramifications of doing just some simple, basic, decent thing, moving from I'm with them to I'm with him. So here are a few examples You probably have stories similar to that. Um, Here's a few examples of what the writers of the gospel show about Jesus' practices, Jesus' practice of welcoming the outcast. Like in Matthew 9, um, Matthew writes this. He's writing about himself, which is interesting. I never noticed this before. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, he's talking about himself, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Mark also tells this story, and in Mark's account, Mark adds, for there were many who followed him. Isn't that interesting? There were many sinners and tax collectors who followed him. Um, then the Pharisee saw the Pharisee saw this, and they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. And now he quotes the prophet Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And what he's talking about there is not a sacrificial attitude. He's talking about a literal sacrificial system. If you look at Hosea, what Hosea says is, I desire, he's speaking for God. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. So God required burnt offerings, but more important than doing the right thing and keeping all the rules was an attitude that was correct toward God, an acknowledgement of God. So Jesus then continues, I have not come to call righteous, but sinners. So this is one of many examples of Jesus having dinner 
in the house of a notorious sinner, and then he takes flack for it. You see that? Here's another example. Both Matthew and Luke record Jesus responding to the kind of accusations that religious leaders were making about him based on his practice of sharing meals with notorious sinners. Jesus says, the Son of Man, this is Luke 7, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, has come eating and drinking, but you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. In other words, by welcoming certain people into close proximity with himself, Jesus was being associated with them. He's a glutton like they are. He's a drunk like they are. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is Jesus guilty by association. Here's a third example. Luke 7, just a couple of sentences later, the story continues when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is an indiscriminate recipient of invitations to dinner. He'll eat with anybody, right? So he's reclining at the table as you would do, you know, head towards the table on your arm, uh, feet out behind, and there was a woman in the city who was a sinner, and she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, and so she brought an alabaster vial of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and she kept wiping them with her hair, of her head, and kissing his feet and anointing them with the perfume. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And then this leads to this amazing conversation between Jesus and the Pharisee about forgiveness and gratitude. And at the end of the conversation, Jesus speaks right to the woman. He speaks to the sinner and says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. A final example from Luke 15 begins like this. Luke 15 begins like this. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees, that's this religious group, this group of um, scholars and political activists in the Jewish um, faith, the Pharisees and scribes, they grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. It can also be translated, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It's in response to that comment that Jesus tells three stories, the story of the lost coin. A woman sweeps her floor till she finds it, celebrates with her friends, she's found her coin. Then the story of the lost sheep. Shepherd leaves 99 to find the one, finds him, brings him home on his shoulders, throws a party, rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. And then finally, the story of the lost son or the prodigal son. The young man who demands his inheritance before his dad's even dead, goes off, lives like a crazy person, hits rock bottom, comes back, but the father meets him on the road, embraces him, throws a party, party with me, celebrate with me because uh, my lost son has come back. This is the story that reveals this beautiful heart of God, right, for the outcast. The story that seems to break through the walls that many of us sort of set up and actually maybe convinces some of us that God actually does love the sinner, that God actually does welcome and love me. It's the story of the prodigal son 
that story is told in response to the complaint that Jesus hangs out with sinners. All right. So Jesus' practice of welcoming others isn't the kind of practice that you got to search really carefully to find Jesus doing. He's continually act, uh, continually interacting with, continually welcoming the outcast. It's nor is this practice something that's difficult to understand. I think we all have a sense of what it means to invite somebody to your house, to share a meal with somebody, to go and share a table, share food and drink with somebody. What the Gospels point out as remarkable is that Jesus is often welcoming those who are seen as the most outcast, like the outcasts of the outcasts. And he is having dinner with them, specifically with tax collectors, which would be seen as like the ones who most abuse their own people for the oppressive Roman government and prostitutes. In many ways, sharing dinner with somebody in Jesus' day signaled the same kinds of things that sharing dinner will signal today. Some of you are going to have parties at your house to watch a football game, and you're going to have food. You're going to invite some people over, and they're going to feel a certain sense of welcome because you invited them to your house that is exceptional. You're, you're welcome here. You're accepted in my home here. This isn't difficult to understand, friends. It's difficult to imitate. Okay? Jesus' welcome of the outcast is not a complicated concept to try to unpack. It's just hard to do. Jesus does this well. We struggle to do it at all. I don't think there's a great need to explain what Jesus is doing here. I think it's pretty clear. So instead, let me make a few observations and ask one question, okay? I'll start with the question. What is the religious people's problem? Seriously, what is their problem. You notice the only people that have a problem with Jesus are the religious people? What's their problem? Why is his practice a problem for them? Probably a bunch of reasons really quickly. There's probably theological reasons for their problem with Jesus. Like the Pharisees believed that it was the sin of the Jewish people that was to blame for the oppressive Roman occupation. So people have a theological problem with Jesus. There's social or ethical problems or reasons for people's problem with Jesus. Like what kind of moral authority can a spiritual leader like Jesus have if he's always hanging out with people who are famous for being sinners? Jesus himself reveals that the word on the street about him is that he's a drunk. Isn't that interesting? Where does that idea come from? It comes from the idea or the fact that he's a friend of sinners. He eats at their houses. So ethically-minded people have an ethical problem with Jesus, and that becomes a social problem with Jesus. And then there are political problems with his practice of welcoming others. That's a problem. The Jews' freedom to worship and limited autonomy within Rome was a very delicate and sensitive thing. Jesus is so darn unpredictable. This is not good for the Jew-Roman relationship, right? The city of Lincoln regularly invites local pastors to give the invocation at the city council meetings. Did you know that? Which is so amazing and interesting to me. It's the, the invocation. That's the word they use. We're invoking the presence of God, which I love. They recently moved the invocation to 545 before the meeting officially starts. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, because it's just a little bit too controversial. And when we're asked to pray at the city council meetings, we are reminded not to use the name. Right? Because political people, people in power, they 
have a problem with Jesus. He's just a bit too controversial, right? So what's the religious people's problem? There's theological problems. There's ethical and social problems with Jesus. There's political problems with Jesus. But I would say it's this. Mostly the religious people, they just don't like it that Jesus hangs out with sinners. I think it's a personal problem. They just don't like it that Jesus hangs out with sinners. It bothers them. It makes them feel uncomfortable. They don't know what to do with it. Why is that? Why is, what's the problem with his practice? Why don't they like it? Why don't we like it? I have a few ideas. These are just observations. You let me know what you think. Number one observation we are better at justice than we are at mercy. Yeah. I think it ultimately has to do with our, and I would include myself as a religious person, it has to do with our strong sense of justice, with what's right and what's wrong. I have a very well-developed sense of justice. <laughs> I have a very well-developed sense of what I think ought to be. I might not be right, but I sure think I am, right, most of the time. I think my problem with those who have done wrong and continue to do the wrong thing is that they're wrong. That's my problem, right? What, what, what they are doing is not right. And I feel this deep, like, rooted, compelling obligation to clarify what's right and what's wrong and to point out what, what they're doing that is not healthy, that is not wise, that is not good. It's like deep in me. But then I have a hard time because I have a, I have a hard time navigating the distinction between what they do and who they are. Very difficult for me. So I have lots of opinions, and I have a few convictions, but I don't want to walk around judging all the people that I see. That's not right. I know that. So I'm in conversa- I was in conversations with a bunch of people yesterday, and the whole time I'm talking to them, I'm like, there's a whole thing happening inside. Oh, don't say that. Yeah, you could address that, but probably shouldn't do that. Yeah, they're off there, but let's let that one slide, right? Let's choose the one thing you have time to actually confront and say something about. In other words, my sense of justice is rather well-developed. It's better developed than my sense of mercy. Or to be even more practical, I am better at the practice of judging people than I am at the practice of being merciful to people. Some of you have the gift of mercy. Paul says there's a gift of mercy. I don't think I have it. Um, I don't think I have it. If you do, we need you, and I need you to coach me. All right. I wonder, does our value of justice or for justice, does it overpower, does it get in the way of our value for mercy? God is a God of justice and mercy. You know that, right? Justice and mercy. Jesus, John says, is full of truth and grace. James, the brother of Jesus, says that mercy triumphs over judgment. But I think we're better at judgment than we are at mercy. I think most of us have a really hard time rejecting a person's selfish, destructive, sinful behaviors while at the same time genuinely accepting the person. And there's such a fine line between what a person says and what a person does and who a person is that sometimes it's just easier to clump the whole thing together and reject it all, just reject, cast it out. It's cleaner that way. And then we say, well, you know, they got what they deserve. 
That's justice. And then, and then we run up against this inconvenient truth, which is that Jesus is also merciful. And Jesus goes out to the one we just cast out, and he welcomes them back in. So first observation, we're better at justice than we are at mercy, so maybe we should work on the mercy part. Maybe I should work on the mercy part. Here's the second observation. Jesus doesn't withhold mercy because someone's theology is wrong or their lifestyle is bad. Jesus doesn't withhold mercy. Jesus calls Matthew to follow him while Matthew is collecting taxes from the Jews, not after he has repudiated his corrupt career as a tax collector. And then when Jesus calls this tax collector to be one of his disciples, Jesus invites him, he comes over to to Matthew's house. Matthew brings him in. Matthew hasn't repented yet. The Pharisees see this as an opportunity to impugn Jesus' character. Oh, he's calling notorious sinners to follow him. Jesus doesn't require Matthew to repent before Jesus will go into his house. Jesus doesn't require Matthew to repent before he'll eat Matthew's food. He doesn't withhold mercy from Matthew. Another example of that is Jesus doesn't withhold mercy from the woman who's caught in adultery. I think it's John 8. He doesn't block justice. He he doesn't excuse the woman's sin, but neither does he withhold mercy from her. Jesus handles the situation brilliantly. You should read it. There's so many lessons to learn from that story. But it's remarkable to me that Jesus does not withhold mercy from her. He does not wait for her to get her life back in order before he accepts her. Jesus' words to the woman are, neither do I condemn you. She has done a condemnable thing, you could argue. It was tricky, and she was kind of set up. However, she had sinned. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus says. But then he says, now leave your life of sin. Which leads to a third observation, a final observation, which is this. Jesus still calls a person to holiness. He still calls a person to holiness. Several times, Jesus' conversations include healing and then end with go and sin no more or leave your life of sin. We clearly see Jesus accepting the individual. This is important. We see him accepting the individual. We don't see Jesus endorsing or affirming sinful or selfish or destructive behaviors. This is super messy, and it's very challenging. It's messy because perception is not always reality. Jesus is perceived to be a glutton and a drunk. Why? Because he's hanging out with gluttons and drunks. That's the rationale. He's actually not, however. He's welcoming the individual as someone loved by God, but he's not endorsing their behaviors, those behaviors which pull them away from the holiness that he calls us to, the wholeness that he calls us to. This is super challenging because you have to be remarkably loving to be able to reject a person's behavior without rejecting them. You have to be remarkably loving. Do you know who's able to do this? Moms. And Jesus, right? Right, that's the answer. (laughs) Jesus is always the answer. Really, the only people I'm able to see this happen consistently is mothers and some fathers who just have this, I can't, I don't know, I know. It's irrational. I will never give up on my kid, right? 
You have to have a remarkable amount of love for somebody to reject behaviors that are hurting your kid and not reject the kid. Now, in our cultural climate, the rules have been drawn in a way that say, if you're going to accept me, you got to accept or even endorse what I do. We, friends, we need to love and welcome people so genuinely that an alternative to this rule remains possible. What's the alternative? That I can welcome the person without endorsing their, indiction, uh, their addictions. I can welcome the person without endorsing their politics. I can welcome the person without endorsing their practices. We have to love so deeply that that possibility remains what I observe in Jesus is full acceptance of the person, whether they're a religious zealot, a tax collector, a prostitute, or a Roman soldier. He accepts them without affirming things like their legalism, their greed, their promiscuity, or their misuse of power. I see in Jesus wholehearted welcome, and I see uncompromised call to holiness at the same time. All right, let me end with this. This is good news. This is super hard and really messy and probably controversial, but this is really good news. First, it's good news for the world. Jesus welcomes the outcast in. Isn't that good news? This is good news for tax collectors. It's good news for prostitutes. It's good news for those who have been defined by their mistakes, for those who have been characterized by their poor decisions, for those who are known for their worst moments, for their sin. Biblical Christianity says to the outcasts of the world, the door is open for you. Come on in. Let's have some coffee. You are welcome here because Jesus welcomes you Right where you are, right as you are, Jesus welcomes the outcast in. This is good news for the world. And finally, friends, this is good news for us. Don't forget, this is good news for us. Jesus welcomes us. We too have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. We've got inconsistencies in our lifestyles. Our devotion to Jesus, even those of us who are in love with him, it is inconsistent, at times weak and fragile. In other words, we too are the outcasts, okay? We are the unqualified. We wrestle with the strong suspicion that God really doesn't like me very much because I did that thing or I continue to struggle with this thing because we've hurt God. We are the outcasts, and we've hurt those that God loves. We've messed up. So, Jesus's practice of welcoming in, may it challenge us in our relationships with those who we see as outcasts. May we say to others, you are welcome here. You are welcome here. And May Jesus' practice of welcoming, may it encourage us 
May it convince us, friends, that nothing can separate us from the love of God, and at the end of the day, we are all sinners in need of grace, and that Jesus is holding the door wide open for each of us as well. He is inviting us, um, in a sense, to share a cup of coffee, but more specifically, to sit at his table, right, and to receive his love and his mercy as those who belong because of Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Forgive us, Lord. People who have taken your name are now mostly thought of as unwelcoming and judgmental, and I just pray for your forgiveness, Um, and I pray for wisdom for us to follow you authentically, Um, to welcome people with our whole hearts, and to pursue the holiness of God with an uncompromising commitment at the same time. We need your help. We don't do it well. And it's easier to come down on one side or another. Today, would you give us the grace that we need to welcome others in and to communicate your unconditional love? Thank you, Lord. Amen.